Well, good morning. Hope you're excited to be here. Yeah? All right. This is honestly my first time to be during here during the 9 o'clock service, and uh, it really makes you have to get up and walk around to greet people, and uh, this is a little more cozy, so uh, this is good. As I set up, I um, just want to introduce you to the um, message this morning. We're going to be looking at um, Psalm chapter 139, and we're going to be looking at the greatness of God. And we're not so much going to be focusing on explaining the greatness of God, but appreciating the greatness of God and responding to the greatness of God. And um, so we're going to look at that, and, and this reminds me a little bit about our VBS theme. Yes, a couple weeks ago we had VBS, and we looked at God's love as being one of a kind. The theme was weird animals, and we looked at how, yes, we were weird, but also God's love is weird. It's actually odd. It's, it's so amazing that we uh, just can't believe it. And so, yes, we can look at God's love as being even weird. But it's his amazing love and our response to that. And I want to just pause and say thank you to all the volunteers. I know we have some in here, and uh, I really appreciate the, the getting up early in the morning, taking off work, setting VBS up, tearing it down, and everything in between. Um, the neat thing is the greatness of God was, was really lifted up and, and um, taught to the kids. The gospel was presented um, and the person of Jesus Christ. And so that was a great week. We had a successful VBS. Uh, we had something like 240 kids and leaders here, and um, it was an encouraging week. So thank you very much. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 139 right now, um, the whole chapter... Looking at it as a whole is deeply personal. I don't know if you've ever read this and just thought, oh, cool, God's great, yeah. And, and, and people are, 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 are there, right, for God, and God is there for them. But have you ever thought about it in light of your own life? Um, James Montgomery Boyce is one of my favorite expositors, and uh, he writes about this psalm. He's saying it has both head theology and heart theology. It's strongly theological dealing with the important doctrines of God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, but it's also wonderfully personal, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. He said it speaks of these attributes of God in ways that impact the psalmist and ourselves. It's not just about God's omniscience. It's God's knowledge, his thorough knowledge of you. It's not just about God's omnipresence. It's about God's constant presence with you. It's not just about God's omnipotence. It's about God's power which created you. Have you ever thought of that before? I hope you can read this chapter now and realize this is God in his greatness for you. So it's deeply personal. It's also a, a standard that we can look at for our communion with God and our family. Um, when you look at this, this should be the standard of communion with God, the transparency. We talk a little bit about, you know, these mountaintop experiences, this closeness with God, and we, we, we remember those moments, and we cherish them, and we look forward to the next moment. But why not stay there, you know? That's what God wants of us, just to, just to stay on that plateau of closeness with him. That is the standard. And so when we read this, that transparency, that vulnerability, that closeness, I want to challenge you to consider that is your daily life. That is what God wants of us. 
in our families, it's a good starting point for us to develop a standard of communion with our children in this way. We should be able to set our children up to be reading this and thinking, this is the way I should be praying to God and responding to God. This is also the way I should be responding to my parents, right? Can you imagine? Uh, when we look through this, you'll, you'll kind of realize a little bit more, but can you imagine your, your kids coming to you and saying, Mom, Dad, you know everything about me. I trust you fully. Here's my laptop. Here's my tablet, my phone. I want you to read all my messages. Here's my, here's my email account, my Facebook account. I trust you completely. I want to talk about, you know, what's going on in school. I want to talk about what I struggle with. And ask me anything at all, and, and I'll let you know. I'll be honest with you. Can you imagine having that conversation with your kid? You'd be waiting for the catch, right? You'd be, you'd be waiting for them to ask for the keys to the car, right? And that would be your five-year-old. Your 16-year-old might be asking for your credit card after that. But that's what we should be encouraging our children to have with us, that communion, that closeness. And so that is what God does. See, God gets personal with his children. He's involved in their lives. He desires nothing more than his children to know him. And we should have that same communion within our families, but especially with God. So I trust today, just to kind of give you a, a, a place to look and to have a goal in mind, a trust that you will come to appreciate God's greatness and be so taken with him as to respond in the same way that we see here in the last two verses of the chapter. You see, David, the writer of this psalm, he responds with a prayer. He sees the, con- the greatness of God, he confesses it, and then he makes a brilliant and daring move by praying these last two verses. So let's look at this real quick. Psalm chapter 139 verse 23 and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. If you look in your bulletins and on the back, you have an outline. And the second point there, I believe, says know me. And that was my mistake. We're going to be looking at three key elements in this verse. It's Search me, try me, and lead me. Those are the three things that the psalmist asks of God. And these are our responses to God's greatness. And we're going to kind of break that apart a little bit more and look into it. So his first response to the greatness of God is, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Um, you've heard that phrase before, right? Search me. Have you ever heard that? If you have teenage kids, you ask for something, and they say, Search me. Well, this is not what we're talking about here. This isn't a, a prideful statement of innocence or um, of a disrespectful comeback, okay? This is a calculated, a humble invitation for correction. And that is not easy to do, right? Have you ever, ever gone to somebody and asked them to correct you, to, to help you, and to discipline you? We do it, but it's very, very difficult. And search here, what he's asking of God, search means to dig deep, okay? To cut deep. You can have this image of maybe a mountain pass and having to cut through that mountain to be able to pull back layer and layer of dirt so that you reach bedrock, so that you can build your road, okay? You have to lay it bare. You have to expose it. And that is what we're talking about here. The psalmist is asking God to expose the deepest parts of himself because he recognized that is the seat of sin. That is, that deepest part, your heart, is your being. 
And so he requests this, recognizing that it is good, even though it is painful. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to be able to walk out of here saying, I want to be vulnerable before God. I'm going to ask him to search me deeply. Um, recently, we did a kitchen remodel in our house. And if you've ever been to our house, you know our floor, I guess the best word is undulating. And uh, our ceiling is bowing. And our walls were kind of a little old. And, and I had to completely gut the kitchen. Like I had to take it down to the floor joists and the, the, and the trusses and the studs in the wall. So I had to peel apart everything and expose the very frame of that house for me to then go over and put on a new floor and a new ceiling. If I had just laid stuff on top of the other, well, it would have been our third ceiling laid on top of that, and eventually that would have come down because it was attached to the one that was coming down. The floor wouldn't be fixed, right? It would still be breathing cold air in the winter and hot air in the summer. So you have to actually peel it apart dig deep. And that is what the searching of God does. When we're being searched, think about it in a personal way here. We feel uncomfortable, right? If we're being examined by someone, uh, when you go to the dentist, right, you, you might feel a little self-conscious or exposed. Not to mention going to the urologist, right? Um, when you see the podiatrist, you might be a little uncomfortable, and I don't look forward to seeing the proctologist, right? I've heard that's not enjoyable. But we feel that, that, that we're a little threatened, we're exposed, we're uncomfortable. And we don't like that feeling, that risk, that not being safe, not being in control. And so vulnerability before God is subjecting yourself to that criticism, to that examination. It's one of the hardest things for us to do, but the beauty of being vulnerable before God is that when you read this psalm, you see the omniscience of God. You see that that means for us that his searching is not a threat, but a refuge. He's already known everything about us. There's nothing we can add. And he knows that, and he wants to help us. And the psalmist recognizes that. And he goes to God, the one person who can search him thoroughly. And I'm just going to read briefly, just to give you an appreciation for Psalm 139. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but just skipping from uh, verse to verse that talks about his personal, intimate love of you. He says, You've searched me and known me. You know my sitting. You understand my thoughts. You comprehend my path. You are acquainted with my ways. You have hedged me. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. Your hand shall lead me. Your right hand will hold me. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Your eyes saw my substance. How precious also are your thoughts to me. When I awake, I am still with you. So these are the words that we see. The psalmist talking about God and his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. And he recognizes that greatness, and he asks God to use that greatness for his benefit. Two things about this searching. First of all, it must be God's doing. Uh, you, you know, we talk a little bit about our self-examination, and that is good. We're encouraged to examine ourselves. But no one can examine like our God can examine. No one is that thorough. No one can look into your heart and see the motives behind your actions. 
And so the psalmist realizes this, and we look in Jeremiah 17.10, you see that God kind of takes on this responsibility, right? He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So the psalmist sees the greatness of God and that goodness, and he chooses to be vulnerable before God, knowing that God is the expert. God is the one who does the searching. You also see that God's word cuts deep and is precise. Hebrews 4 gives us this explanation. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's the only one who can search thoroughly. Secondly, we deceive ourselves, so we can't really examine ourselves thoroughly. I don't know if you know that about yourself, that you trick yourself, literally. You have a way of, of deluding yourself, and I do too. We all do. You look at 1 John 1, 8, and we see that when you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. In James 1, 22, it says, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers. You delude yourself if you are only a hearer and not a doer. And that all happens in the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the heart has the capacity to deceive us. It's the innermost part of us, the core of our being, where our thoughts and our actions begin. And so he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. That goes together. He knows exactly where his weakness is. It's in that self-delusion. So I brought a mirror with me just to point out what an illusion is, right? When you look into the mirror, you guys can all see yourselves. Um, I can see my reflection, and that's simply an image. But when I, when I bend this mirror, right, makes me do funny things. Like it makes me grow and shrink. And that's the illusion of my body changing. It's not really actually happening, right? A delusion is looking at that image or that twisted image and thinking that's reality and believing in it, even though I'm looking at myself and I know that that's not changing, okay? So even though all the evidence says otherwise, the delusion would be for me to believe that, okay? So self-deception seems absolutely ridiculous, right? But somehow we manage it. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical, but we do it. An example might be, I can afford that, right? Husbands, have you heard that from your wives? Or I'm still in shape. Wives, have you heard that from your husbands? God wants me to be happy and go through with this divorce. I've heard that. It won't hurt the kids. Or how about this one? When our kids grow up, they will make worship more of a priority than we do. Hmm. Or how about this one? If it's not, it's not wrong if it doesn't hurt others. Think about what you struggle with. Think about the things that are in your heart. Do you delude yourself into thinking it's not that big of a deal? Do you, do you try to push it aside? 
gives me an idea for other, other illustrations, the idea of playing peekaboo. Have you ever played peekaboo with kids? Right? For some reason, they just love it, right? And it, I think it's that idea of not having the concept of object permanence in infants. It's the idea that an object continues to exist even though it is no longer visible, right? And you put your hand in front of your face and you say, peekaboo, and it's, and it's to them, it's like, you've disappeared. And then suddenly you appear again, right? And they get this odd look on their face like, oh my goodness, she never really disappears when we're playing peekaboo? And we are going to have that face one day when we realize our sin doesn't disappear when we just close it off, right? We can't just ignore it. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. But we try to do that. We try to rationalize that. You may have dropped your kids off in the kids' worship area, right? But I trust that you know they're still there. They haven't disappeared. You have to go get them, right? Wouldn't it be awesome to have that ability, that power, to just make things disappear just by going like that? And things are gone. And we think that we do that with sin. In an infant's mind, when an object goes out of sight, it disappears. And sadly, we act like babies when it comes to our sin. And the danger of this self-delusion is that, as David Clarkson put it, we're flattered into a false conceit of our spiritual state. We think one thing and actually believe it, even though it's not reality. And the greatest delusion is thinking that we can hide our sin from God. Look back at our passage here in Psalm 139. Searching needs to be done by God, but searching is not for God's sake, but for our own sake. If you read the entire chapter, you look at verse 1, and it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Well, then why does he, in verse 23, go back and say, Lord, search me and know me? If God's already done that, why is he asking God to do that again? Well, first of all, it's because it's for our sake. That's why we pray this. It's not about giving God clearance or permission to allow him to see where he previously could not see, okay? He's seen everything. He's searched everything. He knows everything. I'm not letting God in on any secrets. This is for our sake, for my sake. I'm asking God to search me for my own benefit, to lay out all my motives, all my conspiracies, all my vices before God so that I can see them as exposed before the very God they offend. Okay? This, this gives us an idea of the magnitude, the burden of this sin, the problem of it. And so when you pray this prayer, search me, O God, realize that it must be, it must be God who does the searching. It must be for our own sake so that we can appreciate God's grace because of our sin. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, are you so taken with the greatness of God that you are willing to be vulnerable before him, to ask him, search me deeply? The second response of the psalmist to the greatness of God is, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Okay, this is a, a resolution. It's, it's, it's the idea of, I'm going to be tested and I have to stand strong, Okay. The trying here means to refine, to remove undesirable parts, to purge, to discipline, okay? To do surgery on. So we don't just search our sin, right? I mean, we don't just categorize them and put them away and leave them in our hearts. This is a thorough removal, okay? A purifying and extracting. We need to be testing 
and testing ourselves and being tested and being even glad of God's testing. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, he writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to be clear here. When we're talking about sin in our lives, the idea is to put it to death, to kill it, okay? To extract it, to remove it from your life. We are told to flee temptation, right? But the sin that's in our hearts, that's, that's in us. We need to rip it out. And um, I, uh, I have a, a story of growing up in Brazil we, um, we learn to appreciate early on in life um, the dangers of snakes, okay? Um, growing up in Brazil, we learned quickly to take snakes seriously. And there's a certain snake called a jararaca, and uh, you don't mess around with it. It's a very small snake, but it can hide in the leaves and branches. And um, I remember going on our work detail. We used to work Saturday mornings and Monday afternoons. And we had chores every day. So, boys and girls, I don't want to hear you complaining about your chores, okay? We had to actually work. We had to do, do a lot of work. And that was good for us. But I remember walking along the trail, and we were clearing the jungle. And we had our machetes, and Mr. Teeter was in the lead, and I was behind him. And he came to this little stream. We'd been walking for 30 minutes or so. And so we were out there. And he leaped over this small stream and landed and kept walking. I was right behind him, and I got ready to take a jump, and I looked just to see where I was going to land, just to make sure that it was safe, right? And pressed into the mud inside Mr. Teeter's boot print was a jararaca coiled up, and it was mad. I mean, it was waiting for somebody to try that again, and it was just coiled up waiting for somebody to come close. And I had a choice, right? I thought, well, I could just walk around and let people behind me deal with it, right? Or we could just shoo it off the trail and hope to never come across it again. We didn't do that. We knew about snakes and what that snake was and the danger. And the beauty of a machete is, um, you know, it's long enough and sharp enough. And so uh, I reached down and I crossed the stream away from the snake, came over to it, and I pressed the tip of my machete against its neck, and I pushed hard to make sure that it didn't get out. And then I picked it up by the base of the neck, and this is what you do with snakes. I cut its head off. You don't mess with them. You don't throw it off and hope that someday you don't run into it again. I cut its head off, threw the body away, but you don't stop there. We picked the head up. We took it off the trail. We dug a hole. We put the head in the hole. And then, if at all possible, you lay something on top of that hole so nothing digs it up and brings it back to the trail so somebody could step on those venomous fangs. We take it seriously. And it's the same with sin. We can't leave sin undealt with. We don't play around with sin. We do that, though, don't we? Right? We want to we wanna hang on to that sin. We don't want to cut its head off. We think, oh, it's not going to hurt anything. You know what? If I had that snake in my hand, 
you're taught not to try to let go of that snake because they wrap themselves around your hand. You don't, you don't try to throw a live snake. It can come around and bite you so quickly. But we walk around with our sin, right? We hang on to it and we say, I got it by its neck. I, I can control this. And for the rest of our lives, we walk around holding on to it instead of cutting its head off. And that's what this try me says. It says you need to hunt sin down and kill it. Flee temptation when you can. When you've got sin in your heart embedded, when you've got those motives, you need to put it to death. Romans 8.13 says, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That idea of putting to death. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The idea of killing or putting to death the flesh, its passions and desires. It's a systematic eradication. And that's what we're asking God to do. And notice he says, try me and know my anxieties. I always wondered why he picks this out. My anxious thoughts. Do you struggle with anxiety, worry in your life? I I sure do. Anxiety is a distraction in our minds. It's something that needs to be refined. Anxious thoughts are not okay. So often I get the feeling that we tend to kind of shrug it off as a character flaw, right? What does anxiety do, though? Psalm, or Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Why is that? Anxiety is a lie. It's a thief of our joy. It's a challenge to the very greatness of God. It's saying, yeah, God, you're in control, but I don't know, man. Something might happen, right? And I'm going to worry about that. Worry serves no purpose. Matthew 6, 25. Worry is harmful. Psalm 37, 8. I'm going to kind of breeze through these so that we have a little bit more time at the end. Worry is purged through prayer and meditation. Look at Philippians 4, 6 through 8. And it says this. It says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the psalmist, he asks God to try him, to remove that anxiety, and to see if there is any wicked way in him. To remove it completely, to throw it out, to finish that refining process. And so we need to be resolved to finish that refining process, that testing of God in our minds as well as in our hearts. So let me ask you, are you so taken with the greatness of God that you are willing to be resolved to ask God, try me. The third response that the psalmist has to the greatness of God is, lead me. Let me ask you something. Is it your desire to not sin very much or to not sin at all? Have you thought about that before? We often live our lives with the idea that sinning not very much is okay. That's that's a pretty good uh, standard, right, to have. God's standard is complete holiness. 1 Peter 1, 
14 through 16 gives us this. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If we're responding to the greatness of God, it must be with complete obedience. This is the way God wants to lead us in this path, this path of righteousness, this eternal path. It's the same path we read about in Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It's the everlasting way, the way that leads to eternal life. It's a very simple choice, and the Bible gives us so many of these choices, right? Life, death. Heaven, hell. Good, evil. And here he talks about the way of the wicked or the way that leads to eternity. All we've got to do is make that choice and be obedient. And that is what the psalmist asks God to help him with. He says, lead me and I will follow you in obedience in the way that is everlasting. And so are you taken with the greatness of God that you are willing to be obedient, to ask of God, lead me and I'm going to follow you. Following God is a life change. I want to point out that what God demands of us, this vulnerability, this complete um, resolution, and finally that obedience, those things that God has demanded of us that we see in our outline here, he has already done. He has accomplished through Jesus Christ. I want to take a moment as we close here to look at the person of Jesus Christ and how he has done this already. God demands that we be vulnerable. And vulnerability is the potential to be rejected, right? Look at Isaiah 53, 3. This is speaking of Jesus. And this is in Isaiah. This is, this is a prophecy. And this is what happened. Psalm 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. So, did God subject himself to vulnerability? Yes, he did, through Jesus Christ. He was rejected by man. God also demands that we be resolved. Resolution is following through on a commitment. Look at Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. This is where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying to God. He's facing the cross, and he has to be resolved. And he says this. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he was resolved to follow through with his commitment. And finally, God demands that we be obedient. And obedience is doing what is asked immediately and completely and willingly. Was Jesus obedient to this? He was obedient completely. He was obedient willingly and immediately. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we see this. He says, Let the mind 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's obedience, right? And so everything God demands of us, he has given through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, guys. What Jesus Christ has done in his vulnerability, his resolution, and his obedience, he was crucified, buried, and rose again. That's the gospel. And I want to ask you today, can you respond to the gospel? The gospel, C.S. Lewis writes, means to us that we can stop lying to ourselves. Right, we've talked a little bit about that, that idea of that sin in our hearts and how we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves. The gospel means we can stop that. We don't have to lie anymore. Because of Jesus, we have that communion with God. We have that intimacy, that personal relationship with him that we have read about. And so are you so taken with the greatness of God that you are willing to pray, search me, try me, lead me? I hope that that's what we can do this morning and for the rest of our lives. Pray this every day. Ask God to search your heart. We're going to stop and have communion. Um, I just want to explain that our communion that we take together, it's open to all believers. It's an ordinance that we keep in remembrance of Christ's death. And I want you to feel free to come forward in your own time. Jeff's going to come up and um, he's going to play. And uh, I want you to go ahead and come up and take the bread and the cup after I close with prayer. But examine yourselves and go a step further and ask God to examine your heart. Because it's, it's one thing for us to say, I confess my sin, and then go on doing it. It's another to ask God to search out your heart, to try it, to put to death that sin, and to be obedient and live a pure life. So after this time of examining, let's take communion together. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do pray that this morning for all of us. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful or wicked way in us. And God, lead us in the way that is everlasting. We celebrate your greatness now, and I pray that you'd help us to respond in a worthy manner. Thank you for your love through Jesus Christ whose sacrifice we remember today. Amen.